Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Person on the internet. Wow, you're so mature for your age. Other person on the internet. Thanks, it's the lifetime of depression and self-isolation. Intimate interactions is about relationships and intimacy. I can't think of a more important relationship than the one I have to myself. Some educators even talk about self-relationship from the perspective of being your own partner, first and foremost, before having any partnerships or commitments to anyone else. I like that view. Speaking as a person who's lived with depression and anxiety his entire life, I have to ask, are you in an abusive relationship with yourself? It's worth reflecting on your internal conversations. If you have an abusive internal voice, who does that abusive voice remind you of? As a person who's been through years of counseling and has had to unlearn very harmful beliefs about competence, intelligence, elitism, etc., I also should ask, what mistaken beliefs did they teach you, if any? Could you come to some new conclusions about those things and maybe start to cultivate the self-awareness of what you're saying to yourself in your head, mindfulness training perhaps, to monitor what you're actually saying to yourself day in and day out, to catch yourself, to confront yourself? to change your own mind about those things. Depression to me feels like the consequence of my mind divided against itself, and that's not a long-term ideal situation. I think it's often unsustainable long-term. Today my guest is Dax, a person with a degree in psychology and someone who is a long-time depression and anxiety sufferer. I also did some fact-checking from some uncertainties I had during the episode, Everything we say in the podcast is correct, but we lack the confidence to say so definitively, so I've done the research and shared the links in the show description to confirm what I found. To restate, a psychotropic drug is one that affects the mind or mental process, while a psychedelic one is one that induces altered perception or hallucinations like LSD or psilocybin. Thus, when we describe psilocybin as both a psychotropic drug and a psychedelic, both are correct. Also, psilocybin, if you don't know, is the compound found in magic mushrooms. We also guessed correctly that ketamine is a tranquilizer used by veterinarians on horses as well as other animals, and when I'm uncertain about the word eponymous, an eponym is something that something else is named after. For example, a dog in India is named Victor after me. I am his eponym, he is my namesake. And now, to the episode. I mean, depression and anxiety spells Dax. You can be D-A-X. <laughs> You're like, yes, I would like depression and anxiety to define me. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way. You kind of have to move the opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can call you Dax then. Okay. All right. When was the first time you realized you struggled with depression and anxiety? Um... There's no wrong answers. No one's going to know. <laughs> Right. I mean, I guess formally, um, 
it would have been at some point in university. Mm -hmm. um, I still at that time didn't see the anxiety. I just thought I was an awkward person. And mm. so I would use the word awkward a lot. And when a counselor mentioned that that sounded a lot like anxiety and that maybe my issues weren't all depression related, I was pretty stubborn because I didn't see how um, depression, which to me is like something sad and low, how can that exist with anxiety, which I, I don't know, I just didn't see the relationship until I learned that they actually tend to be related. Totally. That's, um, that's absolutely been my experience with the two of them, that when I have depression, I may not personally experience anxiety, but I think as time's gone on and I've had more <laughs> time to live with both of them, I'm starting to see them in other places. Actually, you were the one that put me on to identifying that I had anxiety. Was I? Yeah, you were the first like person, also we've dated, um, you were the first person <laughs> who had mentioned to me, you might be struggling with anxiety. Like, hmm, that sounds oddly like some of the symptoms I have experienced. You might want to look into that maybe being anxiety. <laughs> you had all these subtle hints you dropped for me, and at a certain point I went, oh, because I lived with depression since uh, my earliest memories. I like as as far back as I can remember, I have been a depressed person. I I honestly like the yeah. We'll talk about suicidality in a different episode. I want to focus more on like d d depression, anxiety right now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've I've been depressed as long as I can remember, and I finally decided to go to a doctor and get a diagnosis so I could look at medications um, at 32. So yeah, took me about a quarter century of being like cognitively aware of depression as an experience and probably 20 years since realizing that depression was a thing that I could have and I probably had it and probably like 12 or 15 years since I realized oh there are medications I can take for it but I don't want to take any of those yeah it's really difficult to except in the first place sometimes and and it's like a whole process of like experiencing it and almost like differentiating your true self from what's more likely to be a chemical imbalance from the disorder um mm -hmm. and it's so difficult because you're just experiencing it. So it just feels like it's you. Um, even if logically in some corner of your mind, you're like, eh, it's really, it's a really huge overreaction for like next to nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't stop you crying for the entire day either. Right. Because on the one hand, you're like, it seems like I'm overreacting a lot. But then all of the all of the self-doubt gets in there and it's like, yeah, why are you overreacting overreacting so much? You really have some serious problems. You're like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, or just even like you you just you feel it anyway, even though you though you know you shouldn't. Tell me more about that. Like knowing knowing you shouldn't being like, this seems like bigger than what I would expect someone else to be experiencing. It's just like the awareness of 
being, I suppose, like, say, really short-tempered at the time or um, very easy, easy to set off a strong emotion for, for next to no reason. Almost the same as, um, you know, like, right before your period, you know, you have, like, a day of crying or something over nothing, and then the next day it happens, and you're like, oh, okay, that all makes sense now because your hormones had been plummeting. Um, but you can't separate that just from who you are until later on. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned this you mentioned this as well um, in in a previous conversation where you were talking about the the identities of oneself, like feeling like two totally different people, like uh, while you were depressed versus when you're not depressed. Right. Yeah. Um, entirely different people. That that's what I um, I'm referring to when I say like separating the depression from personality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what did your mental wellness look like before you did any treatment or before you did any physical activity or looked into any sort of coping strategies? Like what was, what was depression like physically for you? What was it like emotionally for you? It prevented me from doing a lot of things. Um, yeah, it interfered with relationships, um, work life as well. Um, you know, you're not um, assertive enough to stand up for yourself, so you're more likely to be bullied in the workplace or just less likely to, say, ask for a raise because why start a confrontation that you could easily avoid, mm-hmm. um, things like that. So you can see how it would add up over, you know, a lifetime if you keep... Um, avoiding those things and don't actually participate in the world just because everything's so difficult. Um, But at the same time, it can just shut off your brain. And so you'll be in situations where the anxiety is there. And because that's there, it's almost like mutually exclusive with critical reasoning skills. And uh, that can cause a lot of self-doubt. You think you're stupid. Um, just because you can't think in the moment. Right. Um, I've heard that explained as like the triple R pyramid. It's like, first you have to be able to regulate, then you have to relate, and then you can reason. But if you can't do the underlying things, your brain isn't able to access the higher functions. Oh, so interesting. You have to like regulate that, that intense um, like fear, confrontation, anxiety, um, response like that whole fight, flight, freeze, fawn thing. Yeah, could be going on. and when it, when you're in the moment and you're kind of panicking, yeah, um, it's hard to think. Okay, first I need to calm myself down <laughs> so I can think rationally. It's just like right. you need to act right now. Yeah, and then there's that whole like cyclical panic experience where panic just leads you to panic more because oh my god I'm panicking what do I do panic more yeah and then self doubt for the future because oh right. if I've done this one time then I'm likely to do it again right yeah the difficulty behind when you've had a panic attack once you're so much more likely to panic in future because what if I panic right now um, is just going to feed into that panic response yeah so there's that. There's that, oh, also, if people are hearing random revving noises, it's because one of my neighbors has been working on, I think it's an old car, and has just been troubleshooting this engine every time I go to record, whether I'm, like, recording intros or in the middle of a session, just arbitrary revving 
nothing I can do about it. Moving on. So regulating, right. So regulating things like the panic response, fight, flight, etc. And then there's that idea of relating. Like, are these people around me safe? Because if you don't feel safe from threat, it's one thing if you're like, I'm flooded with all of these like panic endorphins or brain, you know, neurotransmitters, etc. Whatever specific chemistry or pharmacology is going on, substances, etc. You're just flooded with stress and with an inability essentially to, to cope. At least that's the way that I've sort of experienced it. And even once you're like not flooded and you're like, okay, I can, th- I can think to a limited extent and react, it comes back to, are these people around me safe people to be around? And social danger can feel very much like physical danger. So there's that idea of relating first. And once you realize like, okay, the people around me are not going to try and kill me. <laughs> they're, they're, I'm not actually in mortal danger. Um, you can sort of get to a place where you're like, okay, everyone's looking for some kind of a solution here. So this doesn't have to end terribly with my head on a spike. Um, you know, you've kind of made that relationship bridge of like, I'm not in mortal danger. Then you can look at resting. <laughs> then you can access thinking, but you kind of need those two pieces, not being chemically flooded and not perceiving mortal danger in the people around you. Interesting. I mean, I feel like not perceiving mortal danger in the people around you <laughs> should be like a default kind of assumption, at least. You'd think so. You'd think so. At least if you know the people. But if it's your boss and one wrong word is going to get you fired, and if you get fired, you won't be able to pay for your rent. And if you don't pay for your rent, you'll be homeless. And if you're homeless, everyone's going to attack you, and then you're going to die poor and lonely on the street because no one loves you. If that's That's an anxiety kind (laughs) of. uh, (laughs) Yes. Like, you shouldn't go there on a normal, you know. (laughs) But my brain is certainly keyed to do that if I'm in a stressful employment situation. And and how many people are in stressful employment situations? Like, a fair number. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah, and the more I think about it, that's probably the norm. Hmm. Someone posted something on Facebook that was like, you don't need self-care if you're dealing with burnout at work. You need a union. (laughs) I was like, that's that's really old wisdom. It's funny we've forgotten that. Yeah, there's only so much you can do for yourself outside of work to, like, recover and recharge if you're just going back into a a ridiculously toxic environment Mm -hmm. at a certain point you have to realize whether think about whether it's sustainable or not long term um easier said than done i mean most people with any sort of chronic mental illness are aware to some extent that a major life change like a job transition is likely a trigger to that anxiety or depressive episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could talk about different triggers for depression as well, because that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, let, let's quickly do that. Um, things like life changes you'd mentioned? There's a list that they oh, okay. have of like major life events, things like um, divorce, death of a spouse, moving, um, job transition, being fired, even even like positive things like getting a new job, um, you Win, know, winning the lottery, etc. Yeah, would because it can distance you from all of your social connections. Then everyone hates you and is jealous of you and doesn't interact with you in the same way. And then you feel really like apparently it's a thing that's happened. It's that. ruined people's lives when they've won the lottery because everyone yeah. wants some of their money and it completely disrupts their entire social network. And then they get super depressed. 
I can see that. They get depressed like Scrooge McDuck swimming in a safe full of money. <laughs> yeah, if it interferes and negatively harms all of your social relationships, um, that's, I mean, really the key to quality of life. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, that's that's one of the reasons why I focused so hard on relationship building and alternative relationship structures and trying to find the relationships that would work for me. And that kind of led me on the journey that that gave me the social connections to make this very podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so in terms of coping strategies, thank you for, for mentioning some of the things from the list of depression triggers. Oh, I was going to mention concussion is another one. Brain injury. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that's on the it's some sort of trauma i suppose um but but yeah concussion just the physical damage to the brain can right. you know cause the depression right and also chronic illness chronic pain things like that can also cause depression understandably yep um coping strategies um so we can talk a little bit about substances first illicit ones um do you want to do you want to speak to that <laughs> And this is why I'm not using my real name. <laughs> um, yes, Dex. <laughs> um, well, first, probably in university, I started drinking, um, but I didn't like the taste and I wasn't great at forcing myself to, you know, consume things I didn't like the taste of or that were just making me feel sick. Um what I wanted was for something milder to kind of just like take the edge off life. Um, and it, it took me a while of smoking weed to even get that kind of effect. But as soon as I started to um, regularly, I guess, experience some sort of relief in the moment or some sort of, uh, I don't know, dorf dopamine hit or, or whatever it was, um, you know, I, I became quite addicted to dulling everything, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty common response, especially in university. Yeah, yeah. I, that's also um, a trigger. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> university. Well, because you move, um, you change what you're doing, you change your diet, you change your social network completely. Yeah, there's so many things all at once, right. and you're you your brain's still developing. You don't have any of the you know education that you're going to receive yet. Right. Um, so yeah, you just you're going in blind. And you're being exposed to lots of people that have different coping strategies like alcohol and marijuana and various others. You know, yeah, yeah, just substances. that whole environment, um, which, yeah, is definitely true. And that's, it, you know, it was my roommates that introduced drugs to me. Sure. Um, and... Yeah, the feeling of, you know, like euphoria that you can experience through drugs is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. So I can I can definitely see how someone will get so, so, so low and feel like they would need to resort to anything to really make themselves feel better. Or just, just to not feel so, t yeah, so to feel better, but just to not be in that space of being so, so low. Yeah, um, but, but I mean, drugs are insane. Like you're not, that that's setting the bar low like with euphoria you just fly you feel great yeah well not I'm, that i'm pushing um... <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're here to set us straight on how amazing drugs are <laughs> wonderful 
<laughs> hashtag substance abuse. Um, the next day, not so great. Sometimes. Right, <laughs> right. Possibly the next week. You possibly know. if it was. And it's something that you, or at least I, like immediately was like, okay, I need to be careful with this because. <laughs> <laughs> Too dangerous. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I've, I've known people who have had family members where drugs have just consumed everything in their life, all of their savings, all of their investments, all of their worldly possessions. They started stealing. Like yeah. one of my friends had their older brother literally steal their gaming console for a hundred bucks. Like, yeah. Yeah, it'll turn you into a, a different person for sure. Yeah. And, and you never, you know, want to get to that point. Um, however, my actual next episode plan, like if I get into a ter terrible episode like I did the most recent one, um, I... I want to do mushrooms or special K or one of those ones that, um, you know, the there's research coming out about, you know, microdosing or this or that. Like sure. I definitely. So you're thinking of psilocybin, which is mushrooms. Yeah. I don't know that ketamine has uses for depression. I could be mistaken. I have seen articles here or there. I'm not yeah. sure how um, solid the uh, sure. sources were, but. That's really uh, trying anything is better than trying nothing. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I thought ketamine was a horse tranquilizer. Am I mistaken? Yeah, I think so. I, I think uh, it would be like oxys, I think, are a similar kind of family. I don't entirely know what I'm talking about. So that's, that's okay. So drugs aside, um, how did having that university education in psychology change the way you dealt with depression after university or do you feel like you dealt with it the same regardless oh it changed everything um you know once you're able to name something and see patterns it it was a lot better for me learning through textbooks and lectures um versus a counselor for example because i am very resistant to people telling me about myself i think um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, I, I'm, it's almost like you have a history of people telling you about yourself in like a really destructive, abusive fashion. And that's like <laughs> prevented you from being able to access counseling as one of its effects. Uh, that sounds a little deep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, stop calling me out, Victor. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> kind of blindside me with like with that. I haven't heard that before. I'm going to need to process this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to fluster you. Um, so maybe I'll speak a bit to how that... How, I'll give my own answer to the question while you compose yeah, what yourself. What was the question again? The question was how university education helps, right, right, helps or right. hinders in your response to your mental health. I think, I think it can hinder as well because it's easy to feel like we know a lot having been university educated and then going to someone who say has like a diploma or a certificate in counseling and just being like, do we, do we, do we need this? Is this important? And, and I personally have had a lot of benefit from CBT. Um, I think the education was only a benefit. Um, even with that, because I, I would have started pre-education feeling like I know everything. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, but also, I don't think the counselors that I saw were a good fit for me or even, you know, great in general overall, mm -hmm. um, particularly not the first one I saw. 
probably after the school, maybe the second one. I, I saw a number of counselors in my university years because um, family and friends saw how insane I was going and um, you were kind of hounding me to, to get on doing something. Um, so, you know, that's what I did. And it, it took everything in me to, to go in the first place, you know, because of my anxiety that I still didn't think I had. Um, sure. <laughs> and I think I even stopped going to see that first counselor because she kept talking about anxiety. And I was like, you're, you're just not listening to me and you don't know anything because I'm coming to you because I'm depressed and crying all the time. I don't really want to deal with this anxiety. Um, I guess I had anxiety about confronting it in the first place. You know, once it's an issue and a thing that you need to work on, you need to stop avoiding it. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just wasn't ready at that point and didn't trust her professional judgment either. I resonate with that. I've had um, a lot of counselors over my life. Um, some of them did not resonate with me at all. In fact, um, probably about half of them, I would say, were not really able to offer me anything. And the other half were pretty consequential and helpful. One of them that was kind of both um, was someone from Chimo Crisis Services. Um, yeah, I'll offer him a shout out. Miles Lisinski was pretty awesome. Um, he was a great counselor. Would To the point where if I didn't follow up, he would sometimes call and leave me a voicemail. Yeah, I had voicemail then. Right. Yeah, this was way back in the day. And leave me a voicemail just being like, hey, I was just checking in to see if there's, um, if there's any way I could be of further service. It was like a super chill, just like checking like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a few weeks. And I just wanted to like reach out. and That kind of thing shows they actually care. Yeah, he really did care. Mm -hmm. He did his um, master's in transitions to adulthood um, for like youth transitioning to adulthood. And because, you know, I experienced really severe trauma at like um, 18, he mentioned about a year in that because I was under 25, having such an intense trauma during a form, you know, formative years of brain development right. is going to change how my brain functions and that that's something that we should look at. And of course, he's a specialist in this. And my first thought at the time was like, he's just seeing everything through the lens of his, of his specific like thesis. <laughs> and like, I just was not ready to deal with it. Like yeah. I wasn't ready to handle that information of like, you may never be the same. I was like, no, I refuse to accept that. And I stopped seeing him and I regret it like to this day, not, <laughs> not in any intense way. Like I'd still like, no, that one day, but like for like years afterwards, I didn't really go back to counseling. Um, and it adversely impacted me. TLDR, I really wasn't ready to deal with the fact that he was right. And that can really screw up counseling. If, if even the best counselors move a little too quickly and you get to a place where you just can't accept what they're, what they're telling you, it can really screw up your counseling and it can have a really adverse impact, which is like the crappiest line for counselors to walk when you think about it, because they're just trying to help. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky how did you find just going back to questions how did you find depression and anxiety impacted your opinion of yourself um well before i could separate them as distinct things that were not my personality mm -hmm. um 
it, I, I mean, I hated it, uh, of course. Like, it, you know, it's not, you don't get diagnosed with something, something unless it's significantly um, affecting your daily life and causing you distress on an, a regular basis, right? So if you think that it's just you that's too scared to do anything or, you know, that is awkward um, and can't deal with confrontation just, you know, because it's you, that's a little different from, okay, I have anxiety and it looks like everything's just going to be difficult and I'm just going to have to accept that these things are going to be difficult and if I want to live a regular life, it's just going to be difficult. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, coping with life with different different experiences, different qualities of life. Because mm -hmm. it, it'll really hold you back if you keep avoiding the things that, you know, cause you to shut down. But at the same time, uh, you still have to do them. Like just, you know, it, it's not an excuse to not do things, mm -hmm. even though it's going to be difficult. Right. Would you, would you recommend counseling yourself? And if you would... For others, of course, not for yourself, Texas. <laughs> Would you recommend counseling and what benefits do you think it could offer? Um... I mean, if I had to pick of the two, I would I would more so recommend like a psychology degree or education on the, the thing that you're struggling with. Um, it's, it's more neutral than having a counselor kind of guide you to something. Um, and I think it's really difficult and challenging to find a counselor that you would get along with, um, maybe for most people. Because uh, I forget, I, I don't know the, the study, but they looked at, you know, the best predicting factors of outcome of therapy and above and beyond every other factor whether it was cbt that they were doing like doesn't matter what type of therapy um how how many years they'd been educated like all of these other factors um nothing was more predictive of a positive outcome than the alliance between the patient and um, counselor I, I would believe that. It's not like you're going to open up and do really intense cognitive behavioral therapy with someone if you don't trust them, if they don't feel comfortable and friendly to you. Yeah. So from my perspective, I'm like, if you have education and you have a good friend, um, you know, who you have conversations with, why should that not be good enough like the tools that you learn in therapy are supposed to help improve your um overall quality of life right mm -hmm, so if mm -hmm. you you know can skip that part and get, get <laughs> it from you know a friend like that's the type of relationships that you really should be trying to build anyway so when i was doing group therapy for depression for example um, I very much felt that I needed it when I started it, and I did a, an introductory skills to living well group therapy sessions before that. So that was 
um, you, you know, six to eight weeks kind of thing. And then you start the depression one. Um, you know, by the time it was about halfway through the depression group therapy uh, course, I noticed that it was becoming more of a burden to get to. And it seemed like it was more of a stressor on my schedule. And at that point, I, I decided to stop going because, okay, now I've got things going on in, in real life that, you know, are doing me more good than the therapy was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we disagree on this and I think that's valuable. <laughs> like being able to present two different perspectives on this as two different people that have struggled with different depressions for pretty much our entire lives, I would say. Yeah, because everyone's going to have a different path, too. And totally. one thing is going to work for one person, and that doesn't mean it's going to work for the other person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found that I hated going to counseling. And I hated it most when I first started going. And the more I needed it, the less I wanted to go. Right. So, like, when I was most traumatized, I fucking hated it. I didn't want to go. I wanted a reason to cancel. I wanted a reason to be late. It was it was so hard to make myself go and it was only useful to me then or I perceived it as being useful to me one out of every two or three times. And those are just hard numbers to stomach. Yeah, so I feel like that it's almost like a bad review of that counselor. <laughs> right. I feel like they should you should feel better after every session. Well, I mean, I, I did feel better after most sessions in that, I mean, for, if nothing else, I was glad the session was over, but, but <laughs> no, nobody, but like, nobody wants to look at their own trauma. I don't think maybe some, but like, not at first, like I remember the intake form and it asked me why I was there. And I mean, I was at like a, a suicide crisis center, um, but I remember putting down to find out why I'm here um, because my partner was like, you have to go to counseling. Like right, you just, you and need so to you go. didn't have a, a reason yourself other than that you had been told to go. Right. Um, but also, you know, like dealing with what I was dealing with at the time, um, I could have easily put down any number of things. Right, right. And instead just put down essentially nothing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Sometimes it's just hard to put into words. And when you're not an extrovert, it can be even harder, I think, to go and talk to a complete stranger about super intimate stuff. Yeah, it takes so much energy. Um, almost every single counseling session I've ever had, I've cried at some point during. Uh, I feel like, you know, counseling is just someone asking you difficult questions until they <laughs> see an emotional response. And then they're like, okay, can you elaborate that until you're crying? Thanks. I mean, that has not been my experience of counseling. <laughs> my, my counselors have typically, typically listened to what I was saying and asked me the sort of really obvious questions, like, um, sort of like right then when I was like, it's almost like you've had some, like, someone else tell you about yourself in a way that, like, makes it super hard for you to go and talk to a counselor. Like, like, those kinds of observations that are right. like, I'm seeing this thing that looks really obvious to me um, that other people would not necessarily be able to see in themselves. And I think that's where counselors can be really useful, is they have really good perception and they have a really good ability to make the space safe 
and to build a relationship that feels professional and safe with me. Yeah. The good ones. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not going to say that I never received a tidbit of information or some sort of insight that I hadn't come to myself and that was like, wow, that definitely sounds like something that I would do Um, and, and, you know, can work on it from there. But I would also say that I've had a lot more of those aha moments with a good friend that I talk to pretty frequently. Um, Mm -hmm. Totally. Really good friends can be super valuable. And I agree that building that social network is also critical to pulling out of depression, especially if it's like the short term kind of depression or if you just want to be more resilient against suicide, which is a laudable goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you say short term, I, I... I really feel like that's an inaccurate term. Tell me more. Um, did you not read my notes? You said it didn't make. You said it didn't make. I did read your notes, um, <laughs> but the people listening to the podcast have not read your notes. Okay, just figured you should be prepared. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so um, you had said. I said it doesn't make sense to use the word short term, and then you used it. So right, it right, 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 right. Um, it. <laughs> A lot of people talk about short-term <laughs> depression after significant life events like loss of a loved one versus long-term depression. But like you said, it can be cyclical and it can be triggered by significant life changes. Um, so you were talking about changes like um, when you were 12, just before high school, or when right, you were so 18 leading up to university. I mean, I, if, you gotta, if you look into the DSM, I mean, there's a number of... Um, forms of that depression can take so i i tend to view everything from the uh, the lens of say major depression because that's what i've been diagnosed with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um which is cyclical so when you say short term it's like well you know my episode maybe lasted however long it did a few months um to like year um but it's even if it was say you know a couple months and you would think of that as like a short time that's still part of the pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely feel like my depression is cyclical. I definitely feel like I typically will go through periods where I am depressed and then periods where I'm not depressed and it just seems to return and I've just gotten better at coping strategies. Maybe that's what we should talk about. Right. Um, coping strategies like um, when I'm really depressed, sometimes I'll lean into my depression and just like watch really depressing, depressing media and play video games. And just like I will book the time off that I need off to do that, even if that's, you know, two hours a day or four hours a day or from when I get home from work to when I go to sleep or whether that's all weekend. I just sort of like book the time to do the things that I know I'm going to be doing anyway. And rather than shame myself over like, oh, it's so terrible that I'm, you know, watching all this TV or that I'm playing all these video games, I will just sort of like try and explore that with a gentle curiosity of just being like, I'm really experiencing a lot of depression right now. I wonder why that is. I wonder what my life would look like if I did less of this. Or like, I wonder how it would look if the Saturday I went for a run or did these other things that I know are good for coping with depression. That's how I tend to try and approach it when I'm leaning into depression. But um, 
yeah, I mean, for me, physical activity, there's obviously like diet, sleep, things like that. Occasionally, if I just, even if I have been sleeping, having like a melatonin, um, just to make sure my body has the food that it needs to make the neurochemicals like serotonin that I, that I need. Mm-hmm. So things like that. I don't know, making sure I'm hydrated, all the, all the basic, like take care of your body, self-care type stuff. Yeah, it has to be kind of like a a wide lifestyle kind of approach. It's, you know, you can't really... No one change is typically going to be the end all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really shitty because I kind of wish I could just give people a convenient pill. Oh, wait. Yeah, There's always I mean, that. That can be magical. Yes. Um, yeah, we'll do another episode where we talk about meds. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely probably an entire episode. Yeah. I will have to post a lot of research that I did. It will be a lot. Yeah, it's a, I guess, what seems like a controversial subject. It's Maybe it's just controversial for anyone that's been told that they should take something and is resistant to that. Right. Well, that can be super offensive, too, if people are like, you should go take a substance. And it's like, if you want to take a substance, take one and don't let people shame you for it. But, like, there's no, like, should about, like, you have to go and take meds or something like that. Like, ultimately, it's your body and it's your life. But I don't know. I mean, if you've... I mean, really, you don't even need to have tried other things necessarily. There's nothing wrong with with trying a medication for you know, a short period of time, provided you've researched all the side effects and you're really comfortable with what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, presumably um, a doctor's guidance is going to be much better than your own research when it comes to that. Um, I'm so resistant to that, the same way you're resistant to I know, counselors. I am as well. Um, I, I mean, they go with the the most common ones most of the time, and that works for most people. Right. So, you know, I could almost guarantee, I, I could almost tell you, you know, the most common ones that they, they're most likely to tell you, um, whether it's an SSRI or an NDRI. Um, we'll you have, know, to, and we'll have to go into more details about what those are. But yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll talk about it in another session. Do you have anything closing to say about depression specifically that isn't meds or suicidality related? Um, you kind of always have to be vigilant against it and do what you can to prevent it. Because as soon as you start slipping, um, it's, it's a lot harder to stop yourself than it is to just stay away from the hole. Definitely. I agree completely. Do you have any other last minute advice for folks before we go trying to like squeeze the lemon for the juice (laughs) no not really anything that i can quickly summarize (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you dax so much for being on the show today right so how did you like it intimates leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash victor salmon both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com so what are you waiting for Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. 
The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Resurrection by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.